Okay, we are moving past the Reformation. We've we spent uh, several uh, lectures on the Reformation, the different facets of it, the Lutheran Reformation, uh, the Reformed and Calvinists with Zwingli and Knox and, and John Calvin, the Anabaptists, the Radicals, we, we talked about them, we talked about uh, the English Reformation specifically and, and what eventually became Anglicanism and, and the Puritans and the dissenters there. And so we're moving past that and what is emerging after this is the age of reason and reformation or uh, the age of reason and revivals the age of reason and revivals 1648 to 1789 and uh, I'm getting a lot of my information from Bruce Shelley um, and a few other places Ryan Reeves and Robert Godfrey um, and the the dates come from Shelley I'm not quite sure why he has 1789 um, that might be kind of just the end of the the first great awakening um, but the really kind of the height of the first great awakening was 1740 to 1760 um, but uh, 1648 was the Peace of Westphalia and what that was is basically the conclusion of the wars of religion. So we have in the Reformation era, we have Western Christendom breaking down from its unified medieval structure into nations and really at this time it's the emergence of the nation state. We have the emergence of princes and territories and, and what has become the modern nation state, although I think a lot of people would say the modern nation state I think is really maybe a 20th century thing that formed. Um, but uh, anyway, what's happening is you have princes and civil magistrates who are one particular form of religion is what they would say then, but it's a brand of Christianity. A Lutheran prince, a Calvinist prince, a Roman Catholic prince. And what's happening during the Reformation all the way to 1648 are really intense wars between different princes, different territories that have different convictions with regards to these things of Lutheranism, Calvinism, and Catholicism. Those are really the main things that are going on. In 1555, we start to see, uh, we start to see things starting to be resolved a little bit more. In uh, 1555, we have the Peace of Augsburg, and this was a, uh, this was a peace brokered between Lutheran princes and Catholic imperial forces. So 1555, Remember, do you remember what date the, the Reformation started? No. 1517. So this is, this is well into the Reformation, and we already have Lutherans and Catholics duking it out and coming to the Peace of Augsburg, which, which put an end to some of the fighting there, and they completely left the Calvinists out of it. 1562 to 1598, we have a series of civil wars in France between uh, the Roman Catholics and the Huguenots. Do you remember who the Huguenots were? They were the, they were the French Calvinists. And so they're duking it out during that time. And then by 1598, you have the Edict of Nantes. And um, it made France Roman Catholic, but it also provided some toleration for the Huguenots there. 
Then we have uh, the Calvinist Dutch. They won victory in the Netherlands from uh, their Spanish imperial overlords. And, the, and Spain was able to maintain the Catholic South, which is what is modern day Belgium. And then the, the Netherlands were able to maintain their reformed uh, distinctives. And then the Thirty Years' War is, this is going into the next century, 1618 to 1648, where it's, Calvinists and Lutherans and Catholics duking it out for 30 years. You have Catholics and Calvinists in Bohemia, so really Eastern Europe. The Catholics are just crushing the Calvinists here. And then the Lutherans get in on the action and the Catholics crush them too. And then the Swedish Lutherans start getting in on the action and they start having some victory. And then the fighting just slowly starts to fatigue a little bit. And this kind of territorial idea of this area is going to be Lutheran, this area is going to be Catholic, this area is going to be Calvinist. By the end of this time, it starts waning. And what comes from this is the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, where Calvinists, Lutherans, and Catholics, they all agree that they can live in the same territory together without butchering each other. And uh, the Pope, uh, also there was another stipulation that the Pope was not allowed to interfere in Germany. And so the Pope condemns the Peace of Westphalia, but it was basically ignored by most Roman Catholics. The Pope's condemnation was ignored by Ro most Roman Catholics, and Roman Catholics abided by this idea that we can live in the same territory without butchering each other. That seems like an obvious thing to us because we are the inheritors of this, but what comes out of this is classical liberalism, religious toleration, freedom. We can live together and have differences of opinion, different religions. At this time, it doesn't mean Islam and Judaism and all that. Although, uh, in England, in six, from 1644 to 1660, what's called the interregnum, when the, Engl the established Anglican settlement got taken over by the Puritans and Oliver Cromwell's protectorate, I think is what it's called, where the Puritans just ruled for a while. During that time, some Jewish leader came to Oliver Cromwell, the military general dictator of the Puritans in England at this time, and asked if Jews could come back into England and worship freely, because before that they weren't allowed, not to worship freely at least. And he did, he allowed them to come in, which I think was a good thing. So you, so what, what am I, what's, what's the point of all this? What am I trying to say here? This is the world, th this cauldron of butchery and then peace formed the modern world, this transition into religious toleration, this transition into what eventually became American uh, democracy, really. And uh, so you, from there, from all this, you do have this peace that happens in Europe, but you also have a lot of people with these ideas and religious toleration somewhat coming to America, even though most Puritans who came to America were just as religiously intolerant as Anglicans, uh, meaning they wanted to establish a church and a state that were ruled by the laws of God, and they had their own ideas of what that meant, and they weren't able to get those imposed, and what that basically means is like no Christmas, no Easter, no wedding bands, nothing that smacks of 
papist idolatry. Now, I love the Puritans, but I always make fun of them for all this stuff. And, uh, but but they, it, the general narrative is that they all came to America, right, because they were religiously persecuted. Well, yes and no, not really. They just didn't get their way in England. That's really what it was. And so, so then they came to America and they did the exact same thing that, that the Anglicans were doing, which I think is great. I mean, there were state churches and they were, I mean, there was punishments for not going to, not going to church on severe punishments for not going to church on Sunday, not believing in pedo baptism, denying the deity of Christ. I mean, these things were, the Puritans did the same things as the English, except it was a little bit more more brutal at times. But anyway, I'm getting a little bit off here. Um, and, and so what happened in the new world is that people didn't like that. I mean, you had uh, John Smith uh, in, in uh, I think he was in England. Um, he may have been somewhere else. John Smith and his his cadre were the first Baptists. They, they started reading the Bible and they were like, you have to profess faith in order to be baptized. And I think it may have been like 1690 or something. They performed the first rebaptism and they, 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 uh, and, and so you have people in America that are similar. They don't believe in certain aspects and they don't want to live under that. And in America, it provided a space for them to continue to move geographically out of those areas where they were ruling. And I think that the lesson that we can learn from this um, is that, yes, we want a civil sphere which fears God. But at the same time, I think what we have learned, how we can apply this to our own lives, is that we understand that the power of God's word through excommunication and non-association, which Paul talks about over a dozen times in, in the scriptures, is a more effective way of ruling and reigning than the civil sphere with the actual sword. We want that. We want just laws. We want our civil rulers to be under the authority of God. But I think the lesson that comes out of the Reformation, this post-Reformational era, is that the laws of the state are not sufficient for governing the polity of the church. That's just not how it works. It's just the state is inherently going to be limited and enforcement of laws through excommunication, I think, is a more effective way of doing things. This is the sin of murder and sacrilege. In that, Lord Gilbert has rendered no act of contrition or repentance and is at the moment at liberty in the land. We do here and now separate him from the precious body and blood of Christ and from the society of all Christians. We exclude him from our Holy Mother Church and all her sacraments in heaven or on earth. We declare him excommunicate and anathema. I'm providing a background and a context for um, Christianity in America and the New World, and then next time we will go over John Wesley, George Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards, but I want to give the world that we're entering into here from 
the Middle Ages, Reformation, and then into what I would say is modernity. But what starts to happen in this transitional period, in this era of reason and revival, is the Enlightenment. And with the Enlightenment comes a kind of downplaying of reason or a downplaying of the supernatural and an upplaying of reason and rationality. The supernatural world is not as interesting to philosophers and scientists and these and the men of this time. What's interesting is the natural world. That's what matters. That's what we need to study. Um, and these men still believe that truth exists, many of them, so that's good, but you have this kind of either downplaying of the supernatural in the church or just a complete rejection of it. This is where the deists start coming in, like Benjamin Franklin or things like this. But this is also where atheists start kind of coming in too. You have, uh, you have certain guys that are really kind of attacking the church for her petty squabbles and, uh, and, and really kind of putting forward a lot of the same arguments that you would see uh, kind of the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and stuff like that making now. Now one of the things that is different between I would say what where we're at now with the postmodern world and this modern era, I mean we have overlap, but the modern world still believed that truth exists and there there was faith in reason it's almost like reason was a god right we saw kind of a exaggerated form of this in the french revolution right they get rid of the christian calendar they replace it with some 10-day week or something they turn uh the notre dame cathedral into a temple of reason uh, but we see when reason becomes a god it's a bloodbath and it's uh it's it's insanity and it just gets rid of everything else but in the postmodern world truth doesn't exist and re in it reason and rationality is downplayed and the absurd is exalted the absurd and at really what comes I mean the office is this we listen, we were talking about this before the office is a show is a show that has an existential philosophy where you have all these workers and they have this meaningless existence this meaningless boring grinding existence in a cubicle office space and they create meaning out of the absurdity of life they create these stupid games that they play and they award themselves the lids of yogurt bottles as their gold and silver and bronze medals and they create this meaning and they, they there's an exaltation of the absurd that is postmodernism or sometimes it's called a uh, uh, plausibility structures where we create these narratives everybody has these narratives that make sense of the world for you and you have your narrative I have my narrative that guy has his narrative Buddhism Christianity whatever that's just what helps you make the world plausible it's this plausibility structure so I'm just contrasting this modern that's not what this is this is truth exists reason exists and uh, the postmodern world doesn't say that so I, I'm trying to kind of highlight those those uh, uh, differences 
in the 18th century, you have guys like Voltaire and Diderot, and they were they were deists. But this is what I was mentioning before. These guys attacked the Christian faith, um, both Protestants and Catholics. They they said all the same arguments that Dawkins and Hitchens and all these guys say today. The church the church exploits ignorant people, and they do it for their own gain and it prevents human progress and harmony. It, and it's also intolerant, right? And there, there's probably some justification to what was going on back then. Those things probably were true. They were true in a lot of ways. I mean, the whole indulgence system was an exploitation of ignorant people. And, the, and thank God that God sent Martin Luther and the reformers to denounce all that, right? So you see, there, there, there is traction with some of these things that are going on. Diderot says this, this is kind of a, in some ways a cessationist argument. I, 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 I find this to be similar to how cessationists argue. Uh, you see, one, once one sets foot in this realm of the supernatural, there are no bounds. One doesn't know where one is going, nor, one, nor what one may meet. Someone affirms that 5,000 persons have been fed with five small loaves. This is fine. But tomorrow, another will assure you that he, that he fed 5,000 people with one small loaf. And the following day, a third will have fed 5,000 with the wind. So he's kind of saying this, as soon as you admit the supernatural, it just, how do you know what's true and what's not? As soon as you admit people looking to their, you know, dreams for direction from God, how do you know what's true and what's not? You know, there's difficulties there for sure. But we, the effective answers to these guys, these, th so these guys are popular. I mean, I read, I mean, people who are in classic, uh, who read, uh, you know, literature, um, Voltaire is still, you know, part of the curriculum in, in places, you know, so these guys are still, still have weight. But the effective answer, this is kind of opposite from what we have today, right? Protestants are, Protestants are despised and stupid dum-dums, and Catholics are respectable and smarty pants, right? Really smart, smart guys. That's, and so you have, you know, all the, all you Hillsdale grads, you know, they, who are just like lusting after respectability. Um, they all, they all leave their embarrassing evangelical Protestantism behind and they become Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox um, because, yeah, <clears throat> but anyway. At the time, the effective answers to these men came from Protestants. Protestants actually engaged them intelligently, where Papists, you want to guess how Papists dealt with these guys? <laughs> yeah, with the sword or with censoring, with, with lists of books that Catholics were not allowed to read. Stuff like that. It was a real, and I mean, this is just Rome, and Rome's gone the opposite direction now, where you can just do whatever you want and be a Roman Catholic. But, but for most of Roman history, since the Reformation specifically, and and in the Middle Ages, it, there's always this overreach of power with Rome. And instead of, it was just this dismissive, like, oh, that's silly. We're not even going to engage with that. And in some ways, I understand that temptation because these arguments are silly and anybody who thinks about it for two seconds can answer it but 
um, you have a you have an Anglican bishop Joseph Butler in England, and he wrote the Analogy of Religion, and he gives a robust defense of the faith to these scoffers. He goes right after their God, reason. He goes straight towards reason, and he basically says, "Look." If you have faith in reason in the natural world, you still encounter things that are mysterious and unexplainable. But you have certain assumptions, or what you could even say are, is faith, in order to make the world intelligible. What do I mean by that? It means it's the, it's the basic Aristotelian arguments like, we really have no way to know that our sense perception is reliable. We just trust that it is. I trust that I can feel this. I see that this is green, but there's no way I actually know that for sure. How do I know that I'm not hooked up to the matrix? All that stuff, right? And so what we do is we say our sense perception is reliable for the most part, and so I take this as reality. But there's still an amount, there's still a certain amount of faith in there. There's a element of the of the mysterious in there. And so he's saying, look, you in the natural world, you still have to have elements of mystery and uh, assumptions like the sun raising every day. We don't actually know it's going to raise tomorrow, but it's done it a bunch before. And so we're just we safely assume what's called the uniformity of nature. But it's an assumption. There's no way for us to know. Um, so he's kind of pushing back. It's a really great argument. And he just says, you know, reason is inadequate as the sole governing principle for a complete system of thought. So, I mean, it's a remarkable how similar these things are with atheists now, nowadays. And it's, it's probably always been with us, right? It's probably always, always been here. But my, my, the point is that, uh, you know, these things were coming from the, from the reformed world. Yeah, so the last thing with Joseph Butler, he's, he, was, he was stepping into the world of the Enlightenment. He was stepping into their world and deconstructing it within. And that was an Anglican bishop at the time. So this is, there, there's another kind of thing going on here, which I think we have even to this day. I think we see it ecclesiastically between cessationists and charismatics. Can you, you know what I'm going to say here? What are the thing? What are the main things going on? There's there's something hugely being exalted in the Enlightenment. What is that? What's the what's the driving? What's the God of the Enlightenment? Reason. Yes, reason and rationality, right? And so there's this, and then it's it's purely natural, right? If there is like I think Diderot or Voltaire, I think it was Voltaire said, if God didn't exist it would be necessary to invent him. And so you have guys who know that there has to be kind of a first mover, a prime mover, to use Aristotelian terms. And that's where these ideas come from and stuff. But you have this naturalistic, very rational enlightenment period happening. What do you think is going to be? It's not that strange that as a reaction, and this, and this is influencing the church too, right? You do, you do have this kind of stuffy confessionalism going on, right? In the, in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, you have churches forming, you know, 
the Lutherans forming their, the formula of Concord, and, and the Anglicans doing the 39 Articles of Religion, and then you have the Belgic Confession, and you have, uh, you know, the Synod of Dort, and it's really a high, it's great, I'm glad all this stuff exists, I, I, there doesn't need to be divisions with these things, but there's this really precise, reasoned way of going through religion, of explaining what we believe from the Bible. What that, what comes of that is a dusty, dead confessionalism. And what emerges is people who are more emotional, people who want to experience God, people who want uh, the actual, I don't know, who want room for mystery in their life. And they want to actually, and, and so that is really kind of the first ones that kind of really start doing this are what are called the Lutheran pietists. And confessional Lutherans really hate these guys, but I think they're really great. They believe in justification by faith alone, but they are very concerned with holiness and experiencing God and no, and that experience of God is what they call the rebirth. Like there has to be this kind of emotional, convulsive kind of thing. And this forms really the basis of American revivalism. And it's picked up by Whitfield, Edwards, and Wesley. And that forms the basis of American evangelicalism. How do you get saved? Well, you have to have some psychological, emotional, what we would call heart change. What does it mean to be born again? This is novel in the history of the church. The church has always been concerned with holiness. The church has always been concerned with heart change. The church has always affirmed these things, but the rebirth has always been baptism. When, John, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and the spirit, well, that's baptism. Peter says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and receive the Holy Spirit. Bat water baptism and spirit, and the Bible affirms this all over. I would affirm this as well. I think everyone who's water baptized receives the Holy Spirit as well. So with, with, with what this evangelical kind of, I think I would affirm our American evangelicalism fully, what they're getting at, this, they want to really experience God. They want to truly be saved or born again. The only difference is I just wouldn't use those terms. <laughs> I think that those terms have been hugely unhelpful, but at the same time, they are correct in some of these things, um, this obedience and heart change and all of that stuff. And there is elements of that being born again. And as we'll read, we'll read a Wesley sermon where Wesley does acknowledge that baptism is associated with being born again. I mean, that's, he's an Anglican. That's what, that's what the historic church has taught. Um, but then he goes through the Bible and shows being born again also has these other things. Faith, hope, love, obedience, all of these things. So but my point is out of this cauldron of rationality and naturalism comes a reaction of mystery, supernaturalism, and emotionalism. And in the revivals, it's really emotionalism becomes kind of privileged while the role of the mind becomes de-emphasized. Does that not sound f familiar? If you walk to any kind of cool named church, is that, does that not describe, you know, 
res church or whatever, the, the wow. wow, whatever church, it's a privileging of emotion and a de-emphasizing of the life of the mind, right? Because this is authentic Christianity. This is dead. It's and, and these are Pharisees, yes. right? So there's, there's certain truths to all of this. Of course, we want to actually live out our religion and you know, rational religion can be you know, disgusting. We've all seen it. We, we know these guys who deny God's power of working in the world. <clears throat> I mean, we, and, and this kind of, this idea of being born again you see it mixing with all kinds of different groups. Blaise Pascal famously had this thing sewn into the inner part of his pocket when he died, and it was the date, and I think maybe a description, of an experience, an experience of conversion that he had, which he believed was him being born again. He had, a, he had it written down on a date, and it wasn't his baptism date which if he was Catholic, he would have been baptized as a child. It was this moment of I don't know, ecstasy and emotion when he actually believed that he was truly born again, right? And so that was a Roman Catholic, and he's doing this Lutheran pietist thing. He's doing this evangelical thing. The word evangelical is originally applied to the Lutherans, and then the Lutherans, it, it, and then they have the Lutheran pietist, and then that's picked up by Wesley, Whitfield, and, uh, and Edwards, and that, and then, and that is what modern evangelicalism, that's the kind of like, uh, I guess uh, ancestral tree of, of where uh, modern evangelicalism comes from. We also have this idea of cheap grace, this antinomianism. I mean, this is coming during this time as well. You see, you know, people reading the Bible and they know better and, they, and there's a radical distrust of authority and they just believe, well, we're saved by grace through faith alone. I don't need to be obedient. Um, that happens in the colonies at the time. There's a man, a woman named Anne Hutchinson, who famously, uh, and, and then, so that's happening in the evangelical realm. It's also happening in the Roman Catholic realm. You have, uh, we've, we talked about the Jesuits. The Jesuits were really skilled in reason and um, uh, kazooistry, and, uh, which doesn't mean that they play the kazoo. It means that they, like, case study kind of type thing. Uh, they were, they were, they're very skilled and academic, and the Jesuits from the beginning were so skilled, they were basically sophists. They were known for being really lenient with people, allowing people to basically do whatever they wanted to do. And as a reaction to that, within the Roman Catholic realm, you have the Jansenists, and the Jansenists are basically Roman Catholic Calvinists or Augustinians, which is an interesting thing that the Augustinians and Calvinists, and they were also charismatics as well, the, the Jansenists being these charismatic Calvinists and Augustinians, they really emphasized predestination and obedience, while the Jesuits really emphasized free will and hated Calvinists, and they were all about um, uh, they were they they were all about cheap grace in a lot of ways, and you see a similar thing happen with the Wesleyan movement. Wesley becomes very anti-Calvinist, and you have the Methodist movement really kind of you have the fur and they start departing from a lot of things in good ways, but then it winds up being bad. Really emphasizing free will, de-emphasizing all the Calvinist stuff, and they 
there's some, I'll have to look into this further, but I'm pretty sure Wesley permitted some woman to preach somewhere or something like that. But the, the Methodist movement became liberal really soon, LGBT, it's, it's all this stuff. So that doesn't necessarily mean the Calvinist uh, free will thing is, is actually there, but, or is actually causing these things. But uh, Bruce Shelley describes the, the fathers of American revivalism as uh, the Lutheran pietists, so that's why I bring those up. All right, so we have the, the colonization of the new world happening. We have just, there, it's just a, an age of exploration in general, and, and the Spanish are really crushing it with uh, this, this um, age of explore, exploration. And you see that they start, they're, they're dominating, uh, particularly in the Americas. You have uh, the west side of South America uh, is given to Portugal, and then the east side and the north are given to Spain, which is kind of strange to me because Brazil is on the east side, uh, right? And they speak Portuguese, right? So that's kind of strange. Yes. France and England and the Dutch, they want to start competing with Spain. And so they start sending people to uh, New England and what becomes the states, right? We have Roanoke Colony under Elizabeth, which I think the Roanoke Colony just vanished and we don't know what happened to it. I'm not sure about that. I didn't check, but I think that that's, I think that that's what happens. And these are not people who are religiously persecuted. Uh, these people who come are often come with the sanction of England. A lot of these people who come to New England come with the sanction of England with some kind of economic agreement because it's like, okay, look, you're, you're a Puritan. You didn't get your way in England. Let's send you over to the New World where it'll be mutually beneficial. You can worship how you want and you can bring in some dough for us. And that's what a lot of the pilgrims were. They had this kind of agreement with England. Um, you have Jamestown. It's kind of the first major set, set, uh, settlement in 1607. Um, in 1620, you have the pilgrims to Plymouth, Massachusetts. And you have all kinds of people coming. It's, and most of them are Puritans from England. And some of them are separatists. Um, but Puritans and separatists are not the same thing. Puritans wanted to stay in the, the established Church of England and purify it from within. The separatists completely left. The dissenters, they completely left and didn't want to be part of it at all. Um, so you have both separatists and Puritans coming to the, uh, uh, coming to the colonies. Um, but you also have like Baptist and Anabaptists and uh, Quakers and Unitarians uh, in places like Pennsylvania. Uh, William Penn, uh, he's the founder of Pennsylvania and uh, he was a Quaker. He's the guy who's depicted on the Quaker Oats uh, uh, products. You have a lot of Puritans coming to Massachusetts, uh, lots in Boston. In 1629 through 1649, there was around 25,000 Puritans uh, moved to New England. So a lot of Puritans there in the Boston area. Uh, Virginia has uh, kind of Anglican regulations. Same thing with the Carolinas. The Carolinas are strongly associated with the Church of England. Maryland becomes a place for Roman Catholics, and it's not, they're, it's not named after um, the Virgin Mary, but it's named after uh, Marietta, who was a French queen. 
but even there they weren't a majority but they were tolerated there um, other other colonies were not tolerant of, of Roman Catholics you have Dutch reformed Christians moving to New York and then eventually you start having Swedish Lutherans French Calvinists English Baptists and Scottish Presbyterians so it becomes a melting pot which is I, it's a great melting pot. I think that that's, it's too bad that that's not what the melting pot is anymore, right? It's amazing how this changes, right? It goes from different denominations to different religions entirely and gods. We're all operating under the same God, although you have, you know, a Unitarian, I would say, is not really worshiping the right God. I mean, you, you I, somebody who sits down and, and says, I'm a Unitarian after studying it, I think is starting to is uh, is heretical it's a, it's a, it's genuinely a heresy under Charles the first and Archbishop Laud uh, you start having lots of Puritans come to the Americas um, under their rule you start seeing the reintroduction of stained glass windows crucifixes uh, elevated um, communion tables and they called them altars and so you know Puritans didn't want any of that that's idolatry uh, and so you got a you gotta move, that's what they did. Okay, so you have all of these Christians coming to America, different types, and from 1740 to 1760, we really see an intense revival uh, moment, a ref, uh, uh, which is often called the First Great Awakening. And as we've already said, Wesley Whitfield uh, and Edwards were really kind of the, the premier guys here. Um, but a couple of the characteristics of the First Great Awakening is it gives rise to what we might call fundamentalism where there's this strong suspicion of the academy. And it's, it was very justifiable. Um, it, it was, the, the academy was bringing in all kinds of, you know, enlightenment ideas. And so there's a strong downplaying of the academy. There's a strong suspicion of authority. Bishops specifically are the bad guys and bishops are not to be trusted. And that's probably not without justification as well. So uh, you start to see this, what's sometimes called the, it's called the triumph of the laity. Sometimes historians will call this moment the triumph of the laity, where some preachers say if they were, I mean, this is kind of a, a new thing in Christianity in a lot of ways. I mean, in some ways not, because uh, Clement uh, in the first century or the beginning of the second was writing to the Corinthians again, and they got rid of all their elders. <laughs> so that could be a triumph of the laity. And he's like, look, your elders were fine. You should not <laughs> fire all your elders. Um, so in some ways, you know, I'm sure it's, it, but you see, you know, the Middle Ages and all this, there's strong hierarchical authority. And you have pastors during the, the revival saying, if your minister is not born again, truly born again, which that becomes a really difficult thing to define, but if he's not truly born again, go find a different minister. And so there's, a, there's the, the laity, and that's a good thing, the laity exercising judgment, being involved in decision making, um, and having uh, this distrust of authority and um, the academy, which is 
uh, not always a good thing, right? I mean, I would say what that has morphed into is just non-judicious distrust of hierarchy and the academy. And so some evangelicals have rightly, you know, been labeled as uh, non-intellectual and, uh, you know, non-shirking uh, any kind of authority, right? We don't want to do that either. What we see here, it's also paralleled with revolution. You, the triumph of the laity is paralleled with the war of independence, right? We, we threw off the king and we, we, we have rule of the people, right? Our, our founding documents say things like our, the, the, the governing authorities are, they find their just powers derived from the people. You see the ecclesiastical revolution preceding this kind of political revolution. They're very similar. There's a democratization in the church, democratization in our, the founding of our country. There's a privileging of these small gatherings. We'll, we'll read this with the Methodist movement. The Methodists were Anglicans that they just met together in Bible studies. And they, they, it was like accountability group and they prayed together and they fasted. They really just kind of returned to monkish life. They made oaths not to marry. And uh, after the Reformation and we destroyed all the monasteries and stuff like that, we see a return to a lot of these things. Um, but you see this in the, in the uh, First Great Awakening. Lastly, the other thing, the other characteristic of the First Great Awakening is the rise of emotional revival, this privileging of emotion, which we already said, and that connection to being born again. That born again is this emotional kind of experience. By the mid-1700s, the colonies are really experiencing a lot of economic boom, a lot of economic prosperity. They have um, a lot of trade. They're selling cotton and tobacco and sugar. And we also, so we have the, um, we have these Christians becoming wealthy, which provides for more leisure and freedom and kind of complacency. And so you have them coming in the early uh, 17th century. By the 18th century, uh, this wealth kind of creates this stagnation, this complacency. We also have the enlightenment kind of leavening everything. And so it's primed. God brings this reformation and revival and men to kind of lurch them out of their lethargy, their kind of indifference and kind of uh, stagnation. Even though they're Christians, there's kind of this somewhat of a deadness uh, going on. And there's, you know, the Enlightenment influencing things. It's good and bad. It's kind of like the founding of the country, mostly good. And, uh, you know, there was there was some bad stuff there, too. It's not all good. Um, but once the spirit comes, you start to have kind of the denominational divides breaking down even further. It's kind of like the charismatic revival of the 70s. The spirit moved and it brought all kinds of people from all kinds of churches, oftentimes outside of the church buildings together in open space. And so that's what the spirit does. The spirit unifies the body of Christ. And that happened in the, that happened in the, first, uh, the first great awakening. But a few words here about the, uh, the American church and the war for independence. I don't like to use the word revolution because it's just so loaded 
uh, with really Marxist ideology. That's in, in political philosophy, revolution is often associated with kind of Marxist proletariat, destruction of the bourgeoisie and things like this. And we don't want that, uh, but the war, because it's not justified, but the war for independence was a justified war. Um, in 1713, there was an estimated 360,000 people in the colonies. By 1760, there's an estimated 1.6 million. By 1776, it's 3 million. So you have this explosion of people in the colonies. And what's interesting about that is that explosion was not done mostly by immigration. It was done biologically by people having children. <laughs> yeah, right. And so you have, you have, the, you have the, the first great awakening preceding the, um, the American War for Independence, um, which is an interesting thing to think about. I mean, how these things, I mean, especially us, uh, we don't talk about this a lot, uh, publicly because it gets into deep weird stuff but the connection between politics and the church and what's going on with all of that what is God doing almost this contemporaneous typology um, and with the first great awakening it preceded the war for independence the second great awakening preceded the civil war there's all kinds of interesting things going on in the church with both world war one and world war two both good and bad um, so that's all really fascinating, but I just bring that up. The, uh, what's happening in America is, is really uh, kind of a fascinating thing. I just wanted to mention that biological explosion. Uh, but yeah, the American Revolution happens, and one of the things that John Adams says to um, the militia in Massachusetts he gives some speech to the militia there. It's not very long. You can read it, find it online. He says, our constitution was made for a holy religious and moral people, and it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Just the most profound, truest statement on the planet. I, I see people studying the early father, or the founding fathers, and they think that if we could just go back to that, and it's like, are you actually reading the fathers? What they did is not going to work for us now, right? Even Adams, John and John Adams had some weird stuff. I think he might have been Unitarian. I'm not sure. But, you know, it's like even he understands more than most Christians do. You, there has to be, and I mean, he's doing it in this generic, it has to be a religious and moral people. That's him groping in the dark to try to understand, how can we do this? Well. There's a covenantally obedient people for the most part. I mean, the people at this time, specifically when we start reading Edwards, they at least had preachers who were very serious about holiness. I read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We'll go through it next week. He is going 120 miles per hour for probably over an hour. It's like a 7,000 word count of how much God hates you. <laughs> The whole time, there's no froofy grace or anything. I mean, it's just, it's like the only time he mentions you repenting and asking for mercy is when it's too late and God is crushing you under his feet and staining his garments with your blood. 
like when you're in hell. He's, he just gives, and every single way you could describe hell and God's wrath on you, he does in this sermon. It is wild. And so, I mean, we're, this is the time that they're living in. And they're trying to lurch these people who he even says they have a strong, they, they, he's like, you have every external aspect of religion. You go to church, you even have a prayer closet life. And you, you know, you do all these things, but you could go to hell any moment, you know? I mean, he's really strong preaching. Um, so anyway, one other thing about, uh, I guess, the revel the, what was happening prior to this and, and something associated with the war for independence is that, and we'll get into this more next week, but the Methodists, the Wesleyans, were very active on the frontier in America. They were already, um, their Methodist thing was already kind of outside of the structure of Anglicanism, this kind of rigid parish structure of Anglicanism, but they were still Anglicans. And so Methodists, when they came to America, easy, easy. You preach, you preach outdoors, you adapt to the circumstances. So you have this itinerant preaching thing, but it's combined with kind of the sturdiness of the Anglican tradition. That's what Methodism is. Methodism is basically just an anti-Calvinist Anglicanism. That's all it is. And that is what, I mean, Methodism became, I think, by the 18th century, maybe the, maybe the, or maybe the 19th century, Methodism was the largest denomination in America. And even to this day, I think the United Methodist Church has like 12 million. Two of the main guys that really kind of did a lot were Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch. They were the two first bishops of the Methodist Church. Um, but Methodists, so they have bishops, so you have the sturdiness, but they're, they're giving a lot of authority to the people as well. So I think this is a good thing. Um, they gave the people a voice. And also, during the Revolutionary War, a lot of Methodists who are just Anglicans, during the Revolutionary War, the War for Independence, a lot of Methodists went back to England, but uh, Asbury stayed. And we have an Asbury Theological Seminary or college today. And, and that really kind of reaped a lot of benefits. Um, we see that Asbury uh, also, he mentored a guy named Harry Hosier, who was a freed slave. And Hosier is known to be the first black preacher in America to address a mostly white congregation. So that's something also in common with like the Azusa Street kind of thing. Um, Methodists continue on. We'll, we'll read a lot of this stuff in the 19th century with abolitionism against slavery. Um, and then they're really involved in the civil rights era. And then they just go right into all the LGBT stuff. So it's kind of, it's really tough. What comes to mind is in Joe, it's like, that's good. The abolitionism, even though there was a lot of really deficient theology with it, they were right. They were right to do, to, to, it's the, particularly the slavery, the chattel slavery in the South isn't even sanctioned in the Bible. I mean, that's, it was just a sinful form of slavery. So they were right to, to be against it. The civil rights era, eh, we can debate that. Yeah, men shouldn't discriminate based on color. Uh, was it a good thing that we made it illegal to do that? That's up for discussion. Then you get in the LGBT stuff. Well, that's purely anti-Christian. So they've always been involved in these kinds of 
revolutionary endeavors in a lot of ways that are particularly socially uh, or oriented. So next week, uh, we'll read uh, some, of, some of the sermon from Wesley. We'll read a bunch of stuff from Edwards and some stuff from Whitfield and get a better feel for kind of these principal preachers of uh, the first Great Awakening.